We are in this series called Transformed. We're going through the book of Acts. Last week we talked about giving God our yes. How many of you guys were there for that? Giving God our yes. And sometimes it doesn't always look like what we think it's going to look like. For Stephen, he ended up waiting on the tables. and he. Per- but, but we saw that he was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And so Stephen prepared not for a stage. It seems like society today is always preparing for a stage. He prepared for the serve. And serving is like a seed, though, because sometimes you plant your serve, and you, there's a gap between when you see the harvest of the serve. Have you guys have been there before? You know, you're serving in your marriage. You're serving in the church. You're serving in a ministry. You're serving at your work. And it's, sometimes it seems like there's nothing happening, nothing changing, and there's no fruit from the seed that you've sown. There's a gap in between times. And sometimes that gap even lasts from now into eternity. Like there are some serve seeds that you sow that you will not see the harvest of in this lifetime. And so sometimes we have to realize an eternal perspective. I mean, that was Stephen's case. Stephen, he was serving at the tables. The very next scripture, we see that he's, you know, he's doing the miracles. He's doing all this stuff and and doing what God asked him to do. Have you guys ever been doing what God asked you to do and it not seem to turn out the way that you thought it was going to, right? It's kind of like Mariah was, was talking on there, that it's, it's that gap time, it's the in-between. Well, Stephen was doing everything that God had asked him to do, and, and then this happens in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. In the original language, that means a really bad day. That's what that means. In the, uh, just seeing if you guys are awake, okay? I know you guys are thinking about the game later on. Let's focus in here for just a moment, okay? But it says... The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Stephen becomes the first martyr in the church, in all of church history. But Stephen wasn't the only martyr. We know there were several martyrs uh, after that. In fact, uh, about 10 years later, James, he was one of the sons of thunder, and, uh, in, in you know, you can see him with James in the Bible as one of the apostles, one of the disciples. He, he was really passionate about things. And whenever you have really passionate people, they get saved. He's really passionate for God now. And it's probably his passion that caused him to get on death row to be in line for execution. For what? For believing in the name of Jesus and preaching the name of Jesus. And there's a story that was told to us by Clement of Alexandria, and so we don't know exactly if this is exactly the way it happened or not, but it's been passed down, and I think it's interesting because I definitely see it as plausible and, and probable even. But the, the story goes like this, because we know that James was eventually beheaded, but as he was waiting for his execution, and as he was actually being led to his execution, it said that one of the soldiers that had been watching him, they watched his courage, They watched his faithfulness to Jesus. They watched his unwavering faith and confession to the Lord, even in the face of death. And as he watched this, as he's being led, the soldier is leading him to his execution. He confesses Jesus and gives his life to Jesus, watching James on his way to execution. But that would come at a price because that day, not only would James be executed, but also the soldier who just confessed to Jesus. And so this started a long line of persecution that happened 
in the church. And even as you go even further in church history, of course, we know that uh, all of the apostles, except for John, you know, they tried to martyr John. They couldn't do it. So they, they tried to boil him and they sent him to an island of Patmos where then he writes part of the Bible. So they just couldn't, couldn't kill him off. But, but throughout church history, you get into some of the early church fathers. I, I love the story of Polycarp. Polycarp was the um, bishop of Smyrna or the pastor of Smyrna, the church in Smyrna. You can read about that in the book of Revelation. Many people believe that the apostle John actually was the one who put him in that position and discipled him. But by this time, he's 86 years old. And he just has a quiet spirit about him, but he's been serving faithfully, growing up in all of these things over decades now. But as persecution came in that time, that, that uh, they were after Polycarp. And so, he, you know, the Romans were on their way to his house and... He, he was like ready just to wait it out and to wait there for him, but his friends kind of panicked and they were like saying, come on, come on. I mean, God still has more work for you to do. Let's get you outside of the city. They convinced him to go to an estate that was outside of the city to go into hiding. So he goes there, but while he's there, he has this vision. And in this vision, he sees himself being burned alive at the stake. And he knows I'm to give my life for the gospel. And so when he hears that they're coming again, instead of running this time, all of his friends scattered, but he, he waited for them and he insisted that when they came that, that they would stop and they would, have a, that they would have some food and a drink and he served them as they were coming to take him away. And then as they led him into a place where people were in an uproar, they were bloodthirsty, they were wanting to martyr, and they were wanting him to confess that Caesar is Lord, they were actually begging with him and saying, Polycarp, listen, you're, you're 86 years old. Like, just, just give it up and just say, all you have to do is say Caesar is Lord. He says, I can't say Caesar is Lord because Jesus is Lord. I can't do it. And so they, they pressured him and they said, well, okay, then we will throw you to the beasts. And I love Polycarp's answer. I mean, you can just hear this 86-year-old man who had a quiet spirit about him, but you can hear the, the, the resolve in his heart. He said, he said, bring on your beasts. And they said, well, if you scorn the beast, then we'll have you burned at the stake. And he, he said this line, he said, and I'll just quote it. It's something to this effect. He said, you try to frighten me with a fire that burns for an hour, and you forget the fire of hell that never burns out. And he was, and they, they tied him up to the stake and they were going to nail him to the stake, but he said, that's not necessary. The God who's preserved me all my life will preserve me through this as well. And this sounds a little bit disturbing, I, I get it, but they say, they say that as he was being burned at the stake and he was actually worshiping God, that his flesh began to look like golden baked bread, like, like it was just an offering up to the Lord. And Polycarp, what I love about Polycarp is he named his price, and the world just couldn't afford him. Like, they tried to do everything they could to try to buy him away from Jesus, but they couldn't afford him. His price was so high, his price for his sa Savior, his, his, he had already given his life to Jesus, and that price was so high, there's nothing in this world that could ever buy him away from Jesus. But persecution was hard. And, and listen, there is still persecution. It's not just for the history books. There are still martyrs today. across Our brothers and sisters across the world are still being persecuted. They're still being martyred. And you can go in different places in the world right now, and there's pressure. There's persecution. And so many of you guys know that my brother, Jake, he is in Thailand right now. And where he's at is pretty friendly to the gospel and to missionaries. But 
he also deals with people and works with people who are going into these places where the persecution is happening at a strong level and trains them. And so I asked him this week, I said, hey, could you just share a little bit about some of the, the people that you've encountered while you were there and different, different ministry opportunities uh, who were dealing with this persecution today in real time? So here's a story from my brother Jake. Hello, Journey Church. Today I was asked to tell a story about religious persecution, an example of something that we've come across through our ministry, serving overseas, working with a lot of missionaries and a lot of local <clears throat> churches and pastors. And the story I want to talk about is something that actually happened to us back in 2018 when we were just getting started doing this overseas missions work. And <clears throat> we were asked to come to India and train a lot of pastors that were facing persecution. And I was asked, do I know what the situation is in India with pastors and churches and Christians and believers? And I said, I, I don't, I don't know anything about it. And so I started doing research and figuring things out. And the situation is that in India, um, is a Hindu country. It's it's on paper it's a secular country, but in practicality it's a Hindu country. And so Hindu nationalism is on the rise and as it pertains to Christianity, it's mostly appealing to people that are on the lower end of the caste system. So the caste system is set up to where, you know, if you're at the top, then you are rich and you hold government office and you have power and control. And it stair steps on down to where if you're at the bottom, you're in poverty and your job is to pick up the trash or things like that. And so in that system, Christianity really appeals greatly to people at the bottom because Christianity teaches that uh, people intrinsically are equally valued. And this idea that everybody has equal value intrinsically is a direct threat to the whole power and control system in India. And so when Modi came to office, who's in charge there now, things escalated to the point where India became on the top 10 list of persecuted places for believers. And he came to power on a Hindu nationalism uh, platform. Basically, to be from India means that you're Hindu. But the reality is there are a great number of Muslims in India, and there's a great number of Christians and other religions also. And so these Hindus, they persecute the Christians, either the government or just radical um, Hindus within society. And so when we went there in 2018, it was to train churches and believers to bear up under this persecution. And so we went there and did some trainings, but then on a Sunday, we were asked, hey, do you guys want to go to church? And of course we do. Um, but the problem was the church that we were going to, that, that our host wanted to take us to, um, did not have a published address. And it was they were meeting in a secret location. And the reason they were meeting in a secret location is because in the past they had been targeted by the Indian government who brought them up on charges of what's called forced conversions. So if you do anything, like the American equivalent would be if you have a a pizza night at the youth group, then you're providing pizza so you're manipulating people to accepting Christ because you're you're bribing them with pizza. Um, so that 
is actually like a criminal charge in India. And so this church had been brought up on charges. They had um, had some, they had been targeted by the news, by the papers, and all this resulted in them changing locations and meeting in secret now. So to get there, we didn't have a direct address, and we just drove into the general area and then began asking people on the streets of, hey, do you know where, is there a church near here? Do you know where these people are meeting? And we just walked it in very slowly. And in the end, we saw a guy just standing in an alley, and we asked him, are you with the church? And he was. And once he saw that we weren't government officials, he brought us inside, and we rode up a very tiny elevator. And when it opened up, we opened up into the auditorium. And what you saw was a was a fairly large church um, that were praising and worshiping Jesus. And it really felt like we were somewhere like Journey Church. Just the Spirit of the Lord was there. And what's amazing to me, no matter where I go around the world, when I'm in a church service, you see the same Spirit of God um, that's overt and obvious, and it feels like home. And so all these... Um, People from India are praising and worshiping, and it's actually a fairly large auditorium, but it was completely secret, and you would never know looking from the outside. And that's because their church had been put on the radar of the Indian government, and they were a target. So what was what was great after the service when we began talking about the training, you know, their questions were, what do we do if people lock the doors and try to light the church on fire? What do we do if 30 people come in with sticks and bats and start trying to beat everybody? I mean, these are the concerns that the church has in India from, you know, mob violence to anything and everything. This stuff is happening all over the world. It's happening in India. It's happening in many, many other countries that we deal with. Um, this is just one example. And a lot of people that are distant from persecution will say persecution is so good and healthy for the church. And... You know, persecution is hard, and it's hard for believers to deal with, and it's hard for people to do that in any country, whether we're talking Bangladesh, India, Sudan. You know, nobody really wants the persecution, but at the same time, the church does grow underneath it. And what we found so, so encouraging was how much stronger the relationship was between brothers and sisters in Christ based on the fact that it was not an easy decision to follow Christ here, based on the fact that it meant sacrifice and that everybody was in this together to, you know, make the Lord's name great in this area where there's a lot of resistance to the gospel. And so my heart grew much bigger. Everywhere I go where I see persecution of Christians, my heart grows bigger and closer to God. And I hope just by hearing the story that you guys will understand a little bit more of persecution and that your heart grows bigger. And maybe as one body, collectively, um, we're a little bit closer as a global church. So thank you guys. We love you guys. And uh, we're praying for Journey Church all the time. So there's stuff happening all over the world, right? There's stuff happening that, that that's just one little story of, of things that are happening. And my guess is that you didn't have to get a secret code to come to Journey Church this morning, that you just showed up. And so we're not dealing with the same type of persecution that other believers are. Now, someday we might be, 
Someday, you just, you never know where things go. Someday we might be, but even if we're not dealing with the same kind of persecution, there are still principles in Scripture that, that apply for whatever type of pressure or persecution that we will experience even in our context. And so what I want to do is I want to look at how do we respond whenever we encounter even what we would consider a mild persecution. How do we respond as the church, even here in the United States of America? How do, how do we respond to that? So what I want to do is look at the story of Stephen. We know how it ends, but let's back up and let's see some of the things about how Stephen uh, walked through this process. And if you, it, some of you right now have a, a, you know, an idea in your mind as to, okay, the church in America is getting persecuted or I'm being persecuted, whatever that is, you know, don't, it, it may be somewhere on the scale. Go ahead and get that in mind, you know, whatever you think that is. And then let's see how Stephen responded to persecution and the principles will apply to us even in our situation. So let's look at Acts chapter 6, verse 18. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand his wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then here comes some persecution. They secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And so they begin to, you know, these are religious people who are ba beginning to basically say that this guy is talking against our religion. He's talking against what we know is right. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon them and they seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses that Moses had delivered to us. And so whatever persecution, whether it's extreme persecution or light persecution, here's just kind of a very loose definition of persecution. Persecution is just when people say that your way is wrong, and for us that means following the way of Jesus, and then because they believe your way is wrong or your Jesus is wrong or what you believe is wrong, we're going to somehow make you pay a price for that belief or for walking that out. Now we see in the extreme ways, the paying the price means your life. But in other contexts, context, what does that look like? Because again, Christians in America, we don't experience that kind of persecution at this point. But some would say we still experience persecution. So what would it look like? What is the kind of persecution that people say that American Christians experience. Well, buckle your seatbelt. Here we go. Because some of them would be, and some of you guys will identify this because it's been online and maybe you've encountered this yourself. It'd be things like if you're called homophobic, judgmental, bigoted, racist, unloving, unchri even unchristlike. And so these Charges in today's climate, and today's culture, are leveled around all the time at Christians. And these, these things can, be, it can cause you to be dismissed. It can cause you to be said, well, you're on the wrong side. It can cause you to be pressured into silence. Some of you have felt that before. It can affect your employment. It can affect you. And so these are mild, little mild areas that we would say pressure for following after the way of Jesus. 
And because we follow after the way of Jesus, there's at least a small price that we pay. Now, there's this narrative out there that says this, disagreement equals hate. This narrative is the most manipulative move. It is a false dichotomy. This is not an accurate, and yet this is a narrative that's being put out there today. Now, I can tell you this. There's a lot of people I strongly disagree with, and I do not hate them. Some of them maybe even in this room. I don't know. But so I, there are people who I, I have strong disagreements. Well, I would say I do not think that is right. I do not think that is the way to go. And yet I have the utmost care and concern and still love for them. And so this idea that disagreement equals hate is, is one of the ways that we are tried to be pressured into silence or into conforming. And so when you're pre- so you might feel that right now. You might feel it in this society. You may feel pressured when you say something that agrees with Scripture that says something like God created us male and female. You might be pressured. You might be pressured when you say something that agrees with Scripture that says that, that marriage is between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. You might feel pressure. You might feel pressure when you say something like, I'm for life, not abortion. You might feel pressure. So what do you do when you feel that pressure? Because some of you are feeling the pressure. Some of you guys right now are like, I, I, why are we talking about this in church? I can tell you why we're talking about it, because the world is talking about it. So what do you do when you feel that kind of pressure? How do you respond when accusations are against you that Christians are bigoted, unloving, judgmental? How do you respond? Well, we're going to look at and see what happened with Stephen to see how we respond. And the very next scripture says this, Acts chapter 7, verse 15. It says, and gazing at him. So they made all these false accusations at him. They said, your way is wrong. Now we're going to make you pay a price. It says, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his, that his face was like the face of an angel. What does our face look like in the face of accusations? See, Stephen could look in the mirror, and what he saw back was a pure heart towards people. So here's the, here's the first thing, that how do we respond in the face of persecution or pressure? First thing is, let's look in the mirror. Is it possible that any of these accusations are true? Is it possible that maybe we are judgmental? Maybe there is a piece of us that's unloving in our standing up for truth. Maybe there's a piece of us that's unchristlike in how we're interacting with people who make false accusations or even uh, who, are, who are putting the pressure on us. Maybe there's something in us uh, that is true about this. Maybe we need to actually first look in the mirror. Maybe you grew up in a house. Listen, I'm gonna step on some toes right now, but they need to be. Maybe you grew up in a house where where there was racist talk that was generations before you, and it kind of lingered around your house. And there's still some of it kind of in the vocabulary of your house. Maybe there's something that you have to deal with there. November 19th of last year, we heard about a mass shooting. There were five people that were killed, 17 people injured. It breaks our heart when we hear about that. 
But if something changed for you when you heard that it was Club Q in Colorado Springs, a gay nightclub, then you've got an issue to deal with. And I know it's really quiet in here, and I'm, I'm okay with the tension. But maybe we need to first look in the mirror and say, in my standing up for what I believe scriptures say, am I being unloving? Am I, am I being unchristlike? Am I being judgmental? Am I being, is there a part of me that in my standing up for truth, I've become bigoted in standing up for truth? How many of you guys know that you can say the right things in the wrong way and it still be wrong? You can do the right things with the wrong heart and it's still wrong, right? So we have to first look in the mirror. And this is, sometimes as I prepare for messages, here's what I, I just, I will see things. And what I saw, and I'm going to have Pastor Aaron come up at this time, what I saw is us just taking a moment in this service just to ask the Lord to reset innocence in our heart towards people. See, you don't have to surrender truth to be 100% grace and love. You don't. Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't. He, he was 100% truth, 100% grace, 100% love. And you don't have to surrender either one of those, any of those, in order to walk out like Jesus walked. And so maybe there's a moment that we just need to have, and I've asked Pastor Aaron to sing this song, Fire of Refining, that he wrote. And it talks about just the refining. It talks about revival. It talks about blowing out the ashes. Maybe there's some ashes in our heart that need to go. Maybe there's some old things that need to leave. Maybe there's some places in our heart that, you know, that we, we're so focused on, well, this is what the Scripture says, that we've lost our heart towards people. See, when, when they looked at Stephen, you know what they saw? They didn't, saw? they didn't see angry, unloving, judgmental. What they saw was the face of an angel. They saw a pure heart towards them. God, may we have a pure heart towards people. Would you reset innocence in our heart as we take just a moment and maybe lay some things down at your feet and we just say, Holy Spirit, blow out the ashes of the old and place in us a pure desire, a purity towards people. Reset the innocence in our heart in Jesus' name. Let's just take a moment. God, reset innocence in us. Reset a pure heart in us. Reset it today. We continue in Acts chapter 7. Verse 1, as Stephen's responding to this, it says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? I mean, they made all these accusations. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And over the next 52 verses, Stephen begins to preach a sermon that walks all the way through the Torah into the prophets, tells a story of Scripture and the Bible, you know, 25% of the book of Acts is speeches or sermons. And this is one of the big ones where he walks all the way through. And so they were accusing him of not knowing the scriptures. And he spends the next, you know, however long it took to pour out scriptures. He, he just pours out of him. And so look in the mirror. But I would say this. If you are dealing with pressure right now, here's what I'd say. Stay close to your Bible and not the noise. Because there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of noise on social media. There's a lot of noise in the news. Um, 
if we're spending more time with the news than our Bibles, we're doing it wrong. If we don't have peace, I, that'd be the first place I'd check. I'd like compare a direct comparison, my Bible reading to my news intake, my Bible reading to my social media intake. You adjust that one thing, I just want to, I, I just challenge you, you adjust that one thing, I wonder how much your life changes. Stay close to your Bible and not the noise. Charles, Charles Spurgeon said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Someone who, who stayed close to the word of God. So that when pressure comes, it's the word of God that bubbles out. So when pressure came on Stephen, what happened? He, it was the word of God that just poured out of him. It just kept pouring out of him. For 52 verses, it just kept pouring out of him. See, Stephen put the word of God in him when it didn't look like he needed it. So that it would be there for the moment that he did need it. See, a lot of us, what we do is we think, oh, life's good. Life's going great. And so then we, we don't stay close to our Bible during that time. We're just, we're just, oh, life's great. But no, Stephen understood that even when life is great and I don't have these issues, I'm going to store up the word of God in my heart so that then when there comes a moment of pressure, it's not pain or it's not all the entertainment I've been putting in me that comes out in some twisted way, but it's actually the purity of the word of God that comes out in that moment. Stay close to your Bible and not the noise. You might say, well, it didn't seem to work out that well for Stephen. I mean, he was martyred. <laughs> I mean, it didn't seem to work out that well. Well, I would say, you know what? It did work out for Stephen. He's in the Bible. Like, I don't know if any of you are in the Bible or not. I'm not in the Bible. He made it in the Bible. I mean, it did work out for Stephen because he, he fulfilled his mission to the end. He obeyed Jesus fully. He got to eternity, and guess what he heard? Well done, good and faithful servant. I'd say it worked out just fine for Stephen. See, the thing for Stephen is he didn't just have a temporary mindset. He had an eternal mindset. A temporary mindset will cheat you out of an eternal reward. And so many of us are so focused on what's happening today, and I get it. I see all the red, okay? And I, I'm not, you know, I understand. We're so focused, but day to day. We're so focused on what's happening five years from now, our five-year plan. And that's great. we got to think that way in, to some degree. But what if we started to think in a 500-year plan? Like, what does life look like in eternity? See, Stephen, he thought not just temporarily. He didn't think just temporal. He thought eternal. All right, the next thing is this. Be bold in the Holy Spirit because there are times when there is pressure that just like Stephen, even in the mild pressure that we, that we have today, there are times when you are going to have to stand up and say something that seems very bold. I mean, I've just done it today in this sermon, right? There are times when you have to do that. Watch what Stephen did. And what he says is really bold. Watch this. But remember, he's talking to religious people. You know, in, in all of Scripture, people say, well, Jesus flipped tables. He did all this type of stuff. The, the harshest Jesus talked to, the harshest he ever talked was to religious people who thought they had it all together. And Stephen is talking to religious people, and he's saying some very harsh things here. He says in Acts chapter 7, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. He's having to say some really strong things. He's having to hold his ground. He said, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have betrayed, now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's a pretty strong message, isn't it? He had to say some really strong things. And there are times... To even today, you're going to have to stand strong and say some really strong things. But let me just be clear. Because some of you guys, let me just say this. Some of you guys have gotten really good at saying strong things. <laughs> I can see your social media posts. You guys are really good at this. Let me tell you what being bold in the Holy Spirit is not. Being bold in the Holy Spirit is not just telling it like it is. Well, I'm just going to tell it like it is. I've had enough of this. I'm just going to say what needs to be said. That's not being bold in the Holy Spirit. Being bold in the Holy Spirit is not telling it like it is. Being bold in the Holy Spirit is saying what he once said. Sometimes that's very strong. Sometimes it's very soft. Sometimes it's nothing at all. You know, the hardest thing to do sometimes is to say nothing. When everything in you wants to say something. But being bold in the Holy Spirit is not, oh, I'm going to just tell it like it is. Because this culture needs to hear it like it is. That's not being bold in the Holy Spirit. Being the bold in the Holy Spirit is getting with the Holy Spirit and saying, Holy Spirit, what would you like me to say? And if it's strong, I'll say it strong. If it's soft, I'll say it soft. If it's nothing, I'll keep my mouth shut. So that's being bold in the Holy Spirit. And there's times when you have to do that. So I would just say this, let the Holy Spirit put words in your mouth, not your emotions putting words in your mouth. So many times we let our emotions put words in our mouth, but rather we need to just get with the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, what would you have me say? And I will say whatever you have me to say. When you're under pressure, and here's the last one. When you are under pressure or persecution even, I would say this. Whoever your greatest enemy is, it might be a boss at work, it might be that person online on the other side of social media, it might be somebody, uh, most likely what it is is somebody far away in another state, somebody in some Capitol building, somebody in some whatever business, somebody that the news has told you is your enemy, right? And so whoever it is for you right now, somebody's got that in mind, whatever, whoever my greatest enemy is, here's what I would say, and here's what Stephen did. Treat your greatest enemy as the Apostle Paul, because one day they might be. You realize what happened here in the book of Acts? Acts chapter seven, verse 57, it says, but they cried out with a loud voice, so they heard Stephen preach this sermon. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They're like, we're not, we're not listening to any more of this. Some of you guys might be doing that right now to my sermon. You're like, I'm done with this. I'm just, I'm gonna stop my ears and I'm out of here. They stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, many of you guys know who Saul is, right? Saul becomes the Apostle Paul. But at this moment, he was not. At this moment, no one knew he was going to be the Apostle Paul. At this moment, he's Saul, who's doing things like if we skip down to Acts 3, or Acts 1, verse 3, through 3, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the re regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and he committed them to prison. Saul was like the ISIS of his day. He, he was killing people. He was finding Christians and he was executing them. He was dragging them out of their houses. He was the, you know, whatever, whatever the, the, the terrorist of the day is, that's who Paul was to Christians. Or Saul, rather, in this moment. So all they knew him was Saul. But how did Stephen treat his greatest enemy? If you back up to the end of chapter 7, it says this, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Even in his dying moment, with his greatest enemy hurling stones at him and approving of his execution, he was speaking a blessing over them. Treat your greatest enemy, whoever that is, as the Apostle Paul. Because if we truly have a heart for people, if we truly believe the saving power of the gospel, then our hope for whoever our greatest enemy currently is, is that one day they would be sitting next to us in church with hands lifted up. And if that's not your heart towards your greatest enemy, then you're doing it wrong. So whoever your greatest enemy is, I want you right now to visualize them lifting up their hands in worship in Journey Church right next to you. Because that's the kind of experience that happened when Saul went to becoming Paul. That somebody had to envision it. It turns out it was Barnabas who took him under his wing and said, ah, you know, I, I know no one else can see this, but I know what God is doing in you, and I know the change that God is doing in you. And we have to see them as, I would say this, treat them with the kind of grace and truth. You know, again, 100% grace, 100% truth, 100% love. Treat them with that kind of grace and truth so that if they actually did walk into the church, you wouldn't be a stumbling block to them coming to Jesus. I know this is a very strong message today. But this is a message that needs to be preached. How many of us have become a stumbling block to people who, if they actually did surrender to Christ, they would come into church and they would see us and they'd say, oh, this is what Christians are. So what, uh, uh, let me just close up with this. I'll have the worship team come back up. And I know I've shared the story of my, my dad several times, but it's, it's obviously affected me. I wouldn't be here, right? But I'm so glad, I'm so glad that there were people who, were genuine, loving believers. When my dad was in his teenage years, he became an alcoholic, he became a drug addict, he was a, a hippie, he had long hair, he was like, I mean, there, by the way, there was a culture war going on in his day. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. There was a culture war going on. See, we think we're all special. Oh, today's the culture. No, 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 there's always a culture war going on. And it was intense in that time. An intense culture war going on. And as he was walking, you know, he was walking down a path that was not good. He was homeless. By the time he was in his early 20s, he was homeless. He was addicted to drugs. He was on his way, I mean, on his way to an early death for certain. 
But one day, just north of Cameron, Missouri, there was a little church that was having a revival service. And for whatever reason, my dad was drawn out there. And he walked in to this church and he sat in the back because he didn't want anybody to see what was written on his jeans because he had all these things that no church people would want to see. And he had tattered jeans, long hair. There was a culture war going on for sure, for sure. I'm just so glad that those people in that moment, when they saw him come in, they treated him not as an enemy, but they welcomed him in. They loved him. He heard the good news of Jesus Christ. He felt accepted enough to go and surrender his heart to Jesus that day. What's strange is that you wouldn't even be sitting here in this moment, in this room, had that not happened. They didn't kick him out. They didn't say he was an outcast. They didn't say, oh, you're on the other side of the culture war. You're our enemy. They certainly could have been tempted to. He certainly didn't fit the mold. And somebody might say, "Well, well, I can just, you know, oh, that's great that he came to church. And when he came to church... We can have compassion on them. And that's part of the problem is that we only have compassion on people when they come in church. But what if we could be the kind of people who saw people outside of the church the same as if they had walked in to the church? Because I know what would happen. I I know journey. I've been here since day one. I know exactly what would happen if anyone walks through that door. The people in this church will embrace them will love them. I'm 100% confident of that. I've been here since day one. I know that would happen. My question is, will it happen outside of the walls with the people from this church? And I'm pretty confident because I know a lot of you. But if there's any part in us that there's a hesitation that needs to change about that, let's do it today. Let's change it today. Because pressure is going to increase and you're going to have to say, you're going to have to be bold in the Holy Spirit. You're going to have to hang on to truth. But you're also going to have to look in the mirror at times and say, am I unloving? Am I judgmental? Am I these things that I need to repent to God about? Am I treating my greatest enemy the way that Jesus teaches me to treat them? Or am I letting my emotions speak for me? Can I, can I hold on to truth and grace at the same time and love? And the good news is, in Jesus Christ, you absolutely can and so I think the most appropriate thing we could do at this moment is just to stand up and respond and worship to God. Lord, we, we give you our worship. We give you our life. We say it's all yours. Lord, give us a purity of heart. Give us a boldness of the Holy Spirit. Help us to be salt and light, grace and truth in this world that you've placed us in. Help our heart for people grow even today. Lord, we worship you because we know, just like Stephen, that even in the midst of a trial, that you are greater than any trial, than any circumstance, than any persecution, than any pressure. And we have an eternal mindset, not just a now mindset, but an eternal mindset. And you are the God of all eternity. And so we worship you right now. Let's worship him.